Passionate, driven, enthusiastic, euphoric. This is who we are as entrepreneurs. But how we leverage these incredible attributes to dream and build businesses that scale and grow is what this podcast is all about. Hello, I'm attorneypreneur Josh Brown, and welcome to Franchise Euphoria. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Franchise Euphoria. I am proud to say that we are a top-rated franchise podcast in iTunes, and we are all about helping entrepreneurs find success through business and franchising. Today, I am thrilled to have Chuck Blakeman on the show. Chuck has an off-the-grid approach to business that has been adopted by thousands of business founders and leaders. His vision is to live well by doing good. He has bootstrapped eight wildly different businesses from the ground up, making every mistake possible along the way to some big wins. As an internationally acclaimed business speaker, averaging more than 100 plus speaking engagements and workshops per year, he has been quoted and featured in Entrepreneur Magazine, CNNMoney.com, NewYorkTimes.com, other online magazines, and small business blogs throughout the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. His company, Crank Set Group, works with business founders and leaders around the world to help them make more money in less time and get back to the passion that brought them into business in the first place so they can build a mature business in support of their lifetime goals. He is the author of the popular book, Making Money is Killing Your Business, and most recently published, Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. Today, we will be discussing this book and much more about business ownership and how to make good decisions so your business can thrive. Hello, Chuck, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. I sound really important. Boy, you sound impressive, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, you know, resumes, are we call those obituaries. (laughs) Those are the things that people have done in the past and are always embellished, but, you know, I I sound good. I'm impressed with myself. Yeah, if that was the objective, (laughs) you sound really good. (laughs) Well, I look forward, Chuck, to diving right in as uh, we've got limited time here, and you've got so much that I want to talk to you about. I mean, your, your focus is intended to, to really help entrepreneurs be committed to moving their businesses in a purposeful direction in order to fulfill their lifelong goals. I mean, you run workshops, you write books, you speak about these issues. How did you even get started in this business? Well, I'm an incurable entrepreneurial type. I, I, some people are business owners, meaning they, they had an entrepreneurial spasm and they went out and they started a business and they've done that for 35 years. I, I take the uh, opposite approach. If people tell me there's something that uh, others can't or won't do or can't be done or I can't do it, then that's what I end up doing. And so I ended up with uh, eight businesses I count and three or four more that I don't even count that weren't really weren't businesses, but uh, just attempts at things. And uh, I think it's just from being an entrepreneurial, uh, an addicted, uh, addicted to entrepreneurialism during that uh, 35 years of doing those kinds of things. I've always been interested in helping other people figure this stuff out. And so I've always been involved in helping other business owners build their businesses and giving away everything I could figure out in whatever industry I was in and having them do the same. And, and so I, it was really uh, a phone call from my, really my best friend in the world who lives in Belfast, Ireland, a, a man named John. John Heenan, who owns a company there similar to one of the ones I owned in the fulfillment distribution uh, industry years ago. We met in about 2001 or two, and he called me one day in 2006 and said, Chuck, you're bored. And it's always good to have friends who will 
who'll shoot straight with you. I said, what do you mean I'm bored? You don't know, how do you know I'm bored? You're in Belfast, I'm in Denver. He says, because you have a, a 1.9 handicap and anybody with a 1.9 handicap is either bored or they're trying to go on tour and I know you're not trying to go on tour. So you need to do something else. And he, he's the one who actually suggested that I should get involved in helping other business owners as a full-time uh, business and, and dump the other stuff I was doing. So that's how I got into this. And in the end of 2006, we started the Crankset Group and our objective was to use my 30 plus years of, of doing things wrong and right to help other people figure it out and, and uh, figure it out in a lot less time than it took me. So have you always had that entrepreneurial bug? Yeah, I didn't, you know, you don't know it. You look back, you realize, yeah, I probably always did because even junior high, high school, college, I was always thinking differently than everybody else around me and, and seeing the world through eyes that I thought were normal. And, you know, you, you, later on you realize that uh, you were the weirdo and the other people were normal. So I've always seen the world that way. And, and right from the get-go, I was taking risks that other people wouldn't take and really uh, living adventurously in the sense of, uh, always asking myself, what, what is it others can't or won't do that needs to be done? I'll do that. Well, you know, I love that. And, and I think that there's a lot of people out there, especially in my audience, who are right now trying to think about, you know, maybe they're in a corporate position, maybe they've been in middle management or upper management at a corporation for a long time, and or maybe they've been recently downsized, but maybe they've had that sort of inner bug where they've ignored it for years and years. And they're trying to decide, should I go out and launch my own endeavor or possibly look at a, at a at a franchise business? And one of the things it sounds like with you is you always recognize that in yourself and always acted on that. I know from my, from my own personal experience as an attorney, I mean, the first my first five years in practice, I always wondered why I would find great success at the law firms I was at, but then I would become disinterested. And I always looked at it as, as maybe a problem with myself. But now looking back, I say... No, it's because I had that entrepreneurial thing. I just didn't recognize it at the time. Yeah, I think it, it took me uh, years to realize I actually don't even like running companies. I just like starting and building them. And then somebody else needs to maintain it because if they don't, I'll kill the company and everybody else in it. I'm just not good at that. And So you need to know what you're good at. And I think most people do not need to try and become a serial entrepreneur. I think, uh, thank God there's not that many of us because those are the people who, they, they have big gains, but they're also the people who wreck uh father-in-law's uh, uh, retirement funds and you know they, they leave a lot of, a, a big wake behind them so most people are going to fall in the category of starting a business once or twice in their lifetime and you're right it's going to it's going to be a bug that percolates in them and at some point they're going to get tired of working for the man and they're going to have an entrepreneurial spasm as uh, 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 Gerber calls it and they're going to wake up one morning and say I've had it I'm going to do this myself and then three weeks later after they've already cut the cord they're going to panic and say what in God name have I done but by then it's too late and they're on the road and they'll be fine uh, I think well, I think one of the things that people could take comfort in Josh is that 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 owning your own business is actually normal and not owning your own business is actually not normal pre-factory system which really didn't get rolling until about 1850 pre-factory system uh, the estimates are that 80 to up to 90 percent of people worked for themselves today it's somewhere between eight 
to 15%, depending on which number you look at. So it's a complete reversal of normal. And I think we'll eventually get back to normal as people get back to living locally. We're going to have a resurgence of a lot more small businesses taking uh, taking place of some of the bigger businesses that will become unnecessary. So people who are feeling like, I'm scared to do this, they need to realize the only reason they're scared is because they have 150 years worth of history that has taught them that normal is an employee, and that's not true. Well, I think that's a great segue into your your newest book, Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea, which I love the title, by the way, because just reading that title title gets me thinking, huh, what what is this book about? (laughs) But you 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 speak a lot about the industrial age and the now um, what you call the participation age. Let's break that down a little bit um, for the audience, because I want to talk about this book. I think it's totally applicable to what's going on in our economy and the sort of the the mindset and the shift, as you just kind of briefly touched on, um, with what's going on with business in general. But I think a good place to start might be for you to give a little bit of a background on this book and, and why you decided to write it? Well, I decided to write it because, again, I've always done things a little differently, and I thought I was normal. It took me years to realize I'm the weirdo. And and even in the two instances where I worked for somebody else and I had an employee spasm, uh, I, I did things differently there, and I had a department that that I ran much differently than the rest of the company, and I got a lot of flack for it. And and when I ran ran my own companies, we never had titles. We didn't have uh, – it was a flatter structure. We were more w- focused on results than process. We didn't care where people were or when they were. So I just had a mindset that was different than the average factory system, 8 to 5 or 9 to 5 sort of mindset. And it began to help other companies do that as we grew our company. we, we One of our focuses is to help other companies figure out how to build a company where everybody participates. And uh, I read a blog day, one day. Uh, it was about it was a some kid in his twenties who worked for a very large technology company, and it was a very short blog. And it was in the uh, mid early two thousands that got me thinking on this stuff. Probably two thousand three or four in the early years of blogging, and it went something like this: Every day I, every day I come to work, I leave my car in the parking lot. I get out of my car, I leave myself in the car, and I go into work. And I come out at noon, and I reunite with myself for an hour. Then I leave myself in the car, and I go back into work. I do this every day, and I always hope that I'll get out at the, end, in, at the end of the day in time to reunite with myself before I'm gone. It was a haunting post. Yeah. Uh, the understanding of the, the work is only meaningful in is, is it's a means to a, an end. Work itself is not meaningful, but it's simply the thing I have to do in order to go be myself somewhere else. We don't bring the whole messy person to work. Just bring the part that's the extension of the machine, uh, the whole industrial age mindset. And so what it, what it woke me up to was that even though the industrial age was gone, the, the front office business practices that dominated the industrial age still dominate the front office of every technology, pharmaceutical, and every other company in the, in the world. We're, we're still r- uh, riddled with what I call the business diseases of the industrial age. And employees are just one of that mindset of having people come to work without uh, without bringing the whole person to work. So I, that that took me on a journey to to uh, figure out how to write this stuff down so that other people could be freed of it. And I can tell you that uh, the difference really is that uh, an industrial age company is still doing the things that make Dilbert funny. So if you want to know what an industrial age company is, <laughs> just look at Dilbert. That's an industrial age company. Dilbert uh, was relevant in 1910. 
and it's just as relevant in 2010. It's the exact same guy with the exact same tie. The only difference is that the product that they're slinging is different. But the industrial age business practices are in full bloom in the front office. And until Dilbert is not funny, uh, we still have the industrial age with us. So a participation age company is radically different than that. They've, they've shed the business diseases of the industrial age, which have to do with, with the industrialist mindset itself, with employees, managers, nine to five time-based environments, retirement, other silly industrial age diseases. A participation age company rejects all that worn out stuff. And, and it's built on two things, and that is that, that, that they invite everyone in the env- environment to participate in the building of a great company, and everyone shares in the building of that great company together, including in the profits and, and in other ways. It's a, it's a company that invites the whole person to work, not just the part tied to the machine. And specifically, it's a company where leaders hire people they will never have to manage because there really are no employees in a participation age company. There's not even managers. There's just stakeholders. And finally, it's a place where people are focusing more on making meaning than money. And that sounds like woo-woo crap, but the fact is the research shows that companies that focus on making meaning make a bucket load more money as well. So any hardcore capitalists out there wanting to dismiss this because it sounds like woo-woo crap, I'm going to make more money than you are if I, if I build a company that makes meaning, not just money. How do you do that on a practical level? Because I agree. I mean, I think that that's where um, the good companies are going. I think that uh, there's a lot of companies out there that are striving, I would say, to do that. But when, what they're finding is, uh, from a practical standpoint, they just don't know how. I mean, how, how do you do that where you still are maintaining some semblance of, of control or order or systems or efficiencies or, or processes that are going to ultimately make your, make your company grow, um, but also have a structure that, that allows for the participation sure. age aspects? Yeah. So let me give you, let me rock the boat just a little bit farther to give the audience a, a real picture of what a participation age company looks like. And then I'll answer that question, how do we get there? Imagine this, Josh, a company that has no titles, no departments, no corporate ladder. There's there's never going to be any promotions. Nobody ever gets promoted. There's no office hours, even in a manufacturing company, no office hours where you tell people when to come to work, unlimited vacation time, profit sharing for everybody. Nobody's called employee. Nobody manages anybody. Nobody actually works directly or reports to anyone else. A company with maybe no written policies or even any HR department and a company where that focus is making meaning, not just money. Uh, That would be a hard thing for a lot of people to imagine. But then when I tell them that there's always already a multitude of companies out there that look exactly like that, it's a growing number. It's a tidal wave. And it is the future of business. And if you don't want to do this, you're going to get left behind. So we can look at companies like uh, uh, Semco in South America. They make washing machines. And they look exactly like this. No titles, no departments. Nobody works for anybody else. There's no office hours. How do you make washing machines without office hours? They make more washing machines, better washing machines at a higher profit margin than anybody with an assembly line. And they don't have assembly lines. Uh, you, and they, there's 3,000 of those people. Then you look at uh, W.L. Gore here in the United States. It's a 10,000-person company, $3 billion company. Same exact thing. No titles, no departments, no corporate ladder, no HR department, profit sharing for everybody, no office hours. And they're a manufacturing company as well. 
So these things already exist, and we do this on a smaller scale. We have seven or eight full-time people and 10 or 12 part-time right now. We're going to be a lot bigger than that, but we're in our growth just starting out. And I can give you companies anywhere in between that are doing this. So the, the, the question, obviously, is how do you get there? And the key thing is this, leadership matters. And what I mean by that is if you look at Gore, Semco, TD Industries, uh, Wegmans Groceries, uh, there's a myriad of them out there. You, what, you'll, what you'll find is that the leaders believe something different than the industrial age mindset. And it's simply this. In, the, in uh, 1911, Frederick Winslow Taylor canonized the definition of the modern employee. And everything we know about management comes from this one man. Peter Drucker said uh, uh, Taylor was, it was as influential in the 20th century as Freud, Darwin, and Marx. So this dude really impacted the workplace. And what he said in 1911 in his paper, Scientific Management, he made two assumptions that defined the modern employee. Assumption number one, people are stupid and his 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 phrase was the average employee is so stupid they more resemble the ox than any other type so that was assumption number one and assumption number two is people are lazy and he called it soldiering people will only work so much as to not get fired josh if 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 the average employee is stupid and lazy there's only one way to solve that you have to find that rare smart and motivated person and have them manage all the stupid and lazy ones and make them productive and thus management was born but doesn't is is a lot of this um, does a lot of this go back to how you hire? I mean, because yep. if you if you hire people who maybe their own interests, their own drives, their own passions don't align with what they're actually doing for a company, then no matter what you do, they're always going to somewhat feel that have that empty feeling. I would imagine. Absolutely. But see this, Josh, this goes right back to what I was uh, what I was saying to begin with. It's, it's about the leadership. If you believe that everybody is stupid and lazy, you set up a hiring process for stupid and lazy people. You set up processes for stupid and lazy. You set up systems. You manage the entire thing is set up with the assumption that people are at least mildly not as smart as you and as le- at least mildly less motivated. And so you have an entire infrastructure set up to uh, invite and and control stupid and lazy people. But what if you don't believe that? What if you believe people are inherently smart and inherently motivated and they all want to be adults and they all want to take uh, responsibility for their lives? They all want to make meaning, not just money. What if you believed that? Then your hiring process on out, everything from your hiring process through the way you set up your entire company structure will be radically different than uh, the, the, the basic industrial age mindset. And that's the difference. If you believe people are smart and motiva- motivated, your hiring practices will be different. We have a 10-step hiring practice. And, uh, and I'll just give you some of the radical differences in, in how this mindset, leadership mindset, will change the way even you hire. In the industrial age, because people are stupid and lazy, we have a hiring process that, that is, I don't know where it came from, but it's, in, it's goofy. Uh, when we sit across the desk from someone and we say, so Joe, it says here in your, on your, your resume that you're good at PowerPoint. We're looking for someone who's good at PowerPoint. Are you good at PowerPoint? And Joe says, well, of course I'm great at PowerPoint. 
wonderful, you're hired. It's just the dumbest thing you could ever do, but uh, that's the industrial age hiring process. If you believe people are smart and motivated, you, you do an entirely different process. One of the things we do to begin with is we put out a five to seven page advertisement. It's so long, it's excruciating to, le- to read, and here's why. We found that employees, and those are industrial age people, employees are looking for a job. But stakeholders who are participation age people are looking for work. And the difference is an employee will never read a five to seven page ad. A stakeholder will look at it and say, this is fascinating. What in God's name are these people doing? They're going to read the whole thing. They like to work. They don't mind working to even figure out what the ad is. We cut out 80% of the people, uh, 80% of the employee mindsets never even respond to our ads because uh, they don't want to work. They just want a job. They want to sling resumes at you. So everything from your resume, uh, your, your hiring process on out to how you lead people will be radically in, influenced by these uh, notions. Are people stupid and lazy or are they smart and motivated? So what are the other steps to the hiring process? I think that's interesting. Well, you know, step number one is to put that ridiculous uh, five, five, seven page ad out there. And depending on how much detail you're asking for, if you want a highly detailed person, we bury this in the middle of an ad and say, by the way, do, do not send us your resume. Just answer these seven culture questions. And so we give them seven questions questions to answer because uh, we're looking for culture first. In the, in the industrial age, you hire first for experience, second for skills. And usually not, and for nothing else. In the participation age company, you hire first for culture, then for beliefs, then for talents, and then for skills and almost rarely for experience. You, it's exactly the opposite. So hire for culture, never for skills and experience. So we get a seven page, five, seven page ad. We get people to respond to the ad. If they send a resume, we don't even respond. We just delete the ad. Or delete the response. <laughs> they can't follow instructions. They can't follow the most basic of instructions. And then we read their five to seven answers to the culture questions. If we think that we absolutely fall in love with their culture questions, we call them up. We, uh, we talk to them some more. We, and then we test them for talents. Because talents are things you can't teach, and I'd rather get somebody who, who is highly outgoing and gregarious and really people-oriented and teach them sales than to get someone who is highly skilled at sales who doesn't have the uh, talent for it. Uh, and again, we, we, we ignore skills and experience until just about the end of the process. So we test them for culture, then for business beliefs, then for uh, business talent and, and personal talent. And then we'll actually have them do what we're going to ask them to do. Instead of sitting across the table and asking a boiler tech, are you good at, uh, at uh, uh, fixing boilers? We will break the boiler and take the guy down there and see how long it takes him to figure it out. We send people PowerPoint, Excel, and Word documents and, that are broken and say, here, figure out what's broken and fix it. You got 30 minutes or whatever because we want it done fast. If we want someone who has a sense of urgency, we did this with someone once. We want them to have a sense of urgency and to work really well under pressure. And so we brought 10 candidates into the outer room all at once, gave them all seven minutes each to come in one at a time and interview and tell us why they should have the job. And and uh, I, when they came in, I didn't say a thing. I wanted to see if they would take their relationship and run with it. And it, it threw quite a few of them into a tizzy. But the point is, uh, create a create a uh, uh, hiring process that reflects the result you want. And if you do that, every hiring process is going to be different for everybody you want. Now, this sounds like a lot of work. My response to that is, how much work is it to re uh, to rehire that person or retrain that person over and over and over again? The cost of that is incalculable. 
Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and I, and I see it time and time again. Um, you, you see it in uh, you know, across the board. People make bad hires, bad decisions. Uh, it, you know, it, and it's it's hard doing it. it. That's the other thing. It's hard doing it the old way as well. I mean, how, how well can you really get to know somebody even <laughs> just looking at their resume and talking to them oh, for 20 yeah. minutes? If you look at Semco, Joe, uh, Semco is a good example. If you have a good hiring process, uh, in the average turnover in a manufacturing facility is in the 30 to 40 percent range per year, their turnover is less than 1% per year. That means out of 3,000 people, they lose 20 to 25 people every year. Uh, it, you know, when you hire well and you have a culture of adult stakeholders, people don't want to leave. Why would they? They're making meaning, not just money. But how do you organize that? So are you a proponent? I mean, you mentioned Gerber earlier, obviously wrote uh, the E-Myth Revisit. I love that book. And, and uh, you know, he's a big proponent of systems and processes and efficiencies and and um, and I'm curious, are you a, are you a proponent of that? And, yeah. and if so, how do you work that in with this philosophy? Yeah, in my first book, Making Money is Killing Your Business, we talk about freedom mapping. And it's, it's a, a very different process than what Gerber would go through. And it's much more simplified. But it is write down your major processes and figure out who owns what pieces of those. And that becomes your, you don't need job descriptions or that kind of stuff. Your process maps tell everyone exactly what they need to be doing. Now, we would do it much differently than Gerber as a as an industrial age mindset, and, and I shouldn't, you know, to be fair to Gerber, he wrote the book in 1985, which was really kind of the end of the industrial age. And his answer to that was a little bit industrialist in that his, his, his thing was write the process yourself, do the salesperson's job for six months, write the process in detail, have it completely figured out. And then hire someone to run that process. And his his uh, statement there was, you need to have processes all put in place so that you can hire ordinary people. Uh, I don't think he would use that language today. Uh, we don't believe in ordinary people. We believe everyone wants to be smart and motivated. So our response to it was quite different. When we hire people, <laughs> we actually say to them, here's the result we want. Uh, if there's no process already written for it, here's the result we want. We would like you to go get us that result and in the process of doing that, write down everything you do and let's come up with a process. You are going to create the process. The reason we want them to do it is because of ownership. In a participation age company, ownership is the most powerful influence in life and in business. And if I can get people to own stuff, then I can walk away for extended periods of time and not worry because they own. And if they if they built the process, they own it. If I build it, then I'm basically giving them tasks to do. And the difference is this, Josh, you give people responsibility. Go go create this task, go create this process, and they and they take ownership. If you give them a task, they feel used. And that's a, that's the industrialist mindset. Here, put this nut on this bolt, don't ask why, just do it because I'm I'm the genius and this system was designed by geniuses to be run by idiots, and that's the industrial age mindset. In the participation age, Everybody's a genius, and the guy who's going to run the process is much more likely to come up with a good process than I am. Let's let him write it. I'm still in charge. I get to say, you know, I get to have my input. Hey, I think we should do this. We should do that. But uh, you get them involved, and if you believe they're smart and motivated, you you'll be surprised at how much order you come up with. So a participation age company is uh, on paper. When I say no titles, no departments, no no work hours, all that stuff, it appears to be chaos on paper. When in fact, every participation age company I can think of has much more structure, much more process, much more order 
order uh, and, and much more ownership throughout the whole uh, infrastructure than any industrial age mindset. Well, it sounds to me like it, now that you've 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 provided some clarification around all that, it makes perfect sense to me because that's what I was struggling with for I was trying to say, how do you have any kind of semblance of I don't even want to say order, but just any kind of organization. It sounds like what you're saying is if you're if you're able to structure, whether it's through those freedom maps or some way and, and almost let the, the the people who you are interviewing know, here's sort of what we're looking for. Here's sort of the objectives we're looking to achieve. And but we're allowing you to come in and help us get there. Tell us how to get there. Yeah. So one of the one of the differences you'll see market differences between an industrial age company, and I say that meaning that most companies out there today are still industrial age in their front office practices. One of the differences is that in a participation age company, decisions are made by those who have to live with them whenever possible. So. Rather than me going out and buying a copier for somebody else who's going to do 98% of the copying, I work with them to say, hey, what kind of copier do you think we need? How much would it cost? And then we see if we can swing that. Uh, why would I make the decision when they're the ones who's going to be stuck with that copier? If I make the decision and it breaks, they get mad at me. If they make the decision and it breaks, they figure out how to fix it because it was their decision. <laughs> Do you think part of this philosophy came out of the fact you mentioned early in the in this interview that that you found that you were really really good at starting companies and then did you just realize early on that hey you know there's it obviously takes a lot of people to run a company yeah. and everybody brings different it sounds to me like that's sort of a bedrock of your philosophy it is yeah you have to figure out that you that all of us have a pretty narrow range of what we're good at which means we need a bunch of other people who are good at all the other narrow ranges that they're good at that I'm not. And so you need all those complementary people to make a, a business strong. And I think any business, even an industrialized business, eventually figures out they need complementary people who, who can help them figure this out. Well, so who else um, influenced your business thinking other than, I mean, I'm going to imagine Michael Gerber, Seth Godin, Steve Jobs, those, those, it just seems like that's the kind of philosophy. Sure. Yeah, they probably had an influence. Uh, there's a guy out there named McGregor. He wrote a book in in 1960 uh, called uh, um, Enterprise: The Human Side of Enterprise. Douglas McGregor. And Douglas McGregor was so far ahead of his time that uh, he was ignored for the most part. And uh, he came up with this concept of theory X, theory Y, which was building a, basically a response 50 years later to Taylor's stupid and lazy conundrum. Uh, he, he came up with theory X and theory Y, which he basically said in 1960, you have a choice. If you believe theory X, theory X is people are stupid and lazy. And if you believe that, you will build an entire infrastructure. Everything you do in business will reflect that subtle view of the people working under you. But if you believe theory Y, that people are smart and motivated, everything you do will build will be to build a company where people work with you to build a great participation age company. So he was one of the, the, the grandfathers of this mindset. Uh, W.L. Gore, the, the guy who started, Bill Gore, that started uh, the company Gore, they, they make Gore-Tex, you know, the, man, the fancy material. He started his company in 1959 using this mindset. And again, he rejected the whole industrial age thing. I don't know how he figured this out when he was steeped in the height of the industrial age. He started a company that rejected the whole thing, and he has had a, they've had a participation age company for 60 plus years now. It's phenomenal. Uh, and uh, no, no titles, no departments, no office hours, no managers. Uh, one of the famous statements that comes out of Gore, 
10,000 people, $3 billion. One of the famous statements comes out of there from one employee. They're a stakeholder. They're not employees. The guy said, if anybody here ever told anybody else what to do, they would never work with, nobody would ever work with that person again. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have leaders. They do have leaders. But guess how you become a leader at Gore? You can become a leader because people are following you. They've decided you have some value to add to their lives. So they say, hey, can I get lunch with you? Can I have a meeting with you? And people begin to see that. And then they look at it and say, you must be a leader. Why, why, why do you see that? Well, people are following you. And so you become a leader. And guess when you're no longer a leader? Nobody's following you. But nobody reports to anybody else. Here's, uh, and, and so again, that appears like chaos. Here's, here's, here's a way around that uh, mechanically and mechanistically that the difference is this, at Gore and Semco and, and all the other participation age companies, they organize into pods. Mammals are made to live in community and, and people are mammals, so we organize into pods. And uh, in that context, uh, uh, at Gore and at Semco, you organize into pods of 10 to 12 people. And each one of those pods lives and works together. A pod of 10 people at, at Semco make a washing machine. They make the whole thing. And every six months, they vote on who gets to stay on the island. Nobody decides on who gets to be hired and who gets to be fired except that pod. They also decide on how much each other is going to make. Here's an X, X amount of salary that can be distributed amongst this pod, and they vote, blind vote every six months on who makes what. So all management decisions are made by the pod. And we, you know, jo Josh, if you've ever been an employee, like I was a couple times, and you have other people doing the exact same job as you are, the employees know exactly who is pulling their weight and who isn't, while the managers are completely clueless. Yeah. If, what if all these industrial age managers were done away with and they actually let the, vo the employees vote on who got to stay on the island? 50% of management problems would be fixed overnight. No, I mean, that's <laughs> that, that's really fascinating. I mean, I, I'm trying to think. I don't know if I've ever heard this this philosophy spelled out like you're spelling it out today. I think it's really, really fascinating. I'm almost wondering how does how do potential stakeholders or, or the people looking for jobs, how do they know if yeah. they're looking at a participation age great company? Question. It's a great question. When they're hiring, uh, in our hiring process, we look for employee speak and, uh, em and stakeholders should look for industrial age speak. And what I mean by that is if you're looking at the ad or if you're interviewing with someone, uh, when we're interviewing someone, what we don't want to hear as their first salvo is, well, tell me, how much vacation do I get? What's the pay rate for this thing? How often will I get promoted? What's uh, How many sick days do I get? What's the 401k look like? That's all industrial age victimology employee slash child speak. And the same thing is true for a stakeholder. If the stakeholder looks at an ad and the ad says, we have great benefits as their, as their lead deal. I'm, I think you want to just stay away from that because these guys are selling a dependency environment where we want to make sure you get hooked on the company. Uh, and, and so they, and they ask those kinds of questions and they ask, uh, they ask questions about meaning. Well, how, how will I make decisions here? Who makes decisions and how decisions to get made? And, and, and uh, the stakeholders should be asking why questions. It's one of the more powerful differences between a participation age versus an industrial age company. In the industrial age company, again, it was a system designed by geniuses to be run by idiots. And so the, the most human of questions is why. And in an industrial age question, the uh, industrial age company, the least uh, attractive question is why. Nobody wants you to ask why. It's the most human 
and you're not allowed to ask it. In a stakeholder's environment, that person should be asking why of everything that they're doing in that in that interview. And if if the company isn't embracing that, they should embrace that and say, man, thanks for asking why. Here's exactly why we do that. Let me tell you why. And, and they should be convincing this person of why they do it. They want to get them on board as to the why. So why becomes one of the more important things a, a stakeholder can ask in an interview. And if the person they're interview, interviewing with gets annoyed by that question, you've got someone who has designed a system designed by geniuses to be run by idiots. Run, baby, run. Have you read the book by Simon Sinek, Start With Why? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I think Same thing. Why is the human question? Why is the best business question we can ever ask? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Well, Chuck, this has been a great interview. It's we're now thirty six minutes in. It's just flown by. I have so many things I, I want to talk to you about. Well, maybe we'll save it for another part yeah. two interview. But tell people where they can get your book, where they can learn more about you, and uh, otherwise get a hold of you. Well, the new book it's uh, Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea, and you can find it on Amazon. Uh, or uh, in some bookstores, we haven't actually done the whole distribution thing because 55% of books are sold on Amazon, but we have ebook, any format of ebook, uh, we can go there as well. And it, even though it's published in 2014, we let out some early releases and somebody <laughs> named it their top 10 book of 2013. So, so we, have to get, uh, we have to get somebody to rename it for 2014. But, uh, <laughs> we got a good start. So why employees are always a bad idea.com. You can get it there or you can get it on Amazon or in ebook and, and uh, hard copy form. Well, great. Again, thank you for taking time. You're doing some great stuff. You definitely have a, a really interesting and, and a philosophy that I think is uh, is making its way around and people are starting to realize it's a better philosophy than, than the old way of doing things. So thank you for sharing that. I look forward to uh, following what you're doing. Great. Let's do it again, Josh. Thanks. Thanks for being with us today on the Franchise Euphoria podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to go to iTunes and provide a review. Also, please remember that although Josh Brown is a licensed and practicing attorney, nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as legal advice, because it is not. The information contained in this podcast is general and educational in nature, and none of it should be relied upon as legal advice. That being said, if you have questions for Josh and would like to contact him, please email him at josh at franchiseuphoria.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you tune in to our next weekly episode. <laughs>